Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Sounds great. It could be wonderful. It is definitely another edition of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. I'm Nikki Dakota, your host, joined in the studio, in the live, as a matter of fact. At the Neon Movies. In Dayton, downtown Ohio. Dayton, Ohio. Yay! we got a live It's a rare thing that they let us out in public where we can actually be seen, and it's very good to be here and seeing and you. And we're at the Dayton Film Festival, right? The we Film Dayton are. Festival. The Film, film Dayton. Dayton Festival, all here, a part of uh, supporting film and its growth in Dayton, Ohio, and beyond. And uh, on that note, it's a great, great pleasure to welcome my two favorite frame buddies, my uh, film guys. It is uh, on your radio right. Our favorite nitrate film archivist at the Library of Congress and the possessor of the largest frame brain on the planet. He is George Willeman, uh, ladies and gentlemen, George. Yeah, that that music always reminds me. It makes me think of the opening day of Congress. <laughs> <laughs> also on your radio, left. our man at the Library of Congress. Try to hear about that when I get back. Our other film guy is uh, the uh, the storyboard artist for the Coen Brothers, and uh, for for more than twenty years, every film since Raising Arizona. Uh, he doesn't like the math on that, but also all of our favorite films. You'll find that uh, he has drawn those original storyboards. He is J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Always a pleasure. We come together at uh, semi-regular intervals to discuss some of the finest images and sounds that have been laid to film. And uh, on this day, gentlemen, we celebrate cartoons. It is Saturday morning after all, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I was going to wear my pajamas, but I forgot them. There was a time when the the two cartoons that we're doing... Uh, in the early part of television, that's all you saw on Saturday mornings was the Warner Brothers cartoons, and then there was a proliferation of uh, Drew Dog yeah. and, and, and that kind of stuff. But these guys set the tone for just about everything. Movies, right. And then these two cartoons actually saw their original birthing in the theater before before features back in the day when you got your money's worth when you went to the movies. Yeah. Right. Be having cartoons and newsreels and whatnot. You know, if you ever get a chance to see any of these Warner Brother cartoons on a big screen projected, do it. Because they are the most lavishly beautifully designed and colored uh, cartoons you'd ever see. I mean, they use gouache and, and, and all those wonderful uh, paints on cells, and they're just so beautiful projected. You're going to tell us what gouache means later on, but before that, uh, we need to tell exactly which two. This is a specific focus on music in cartoons. Well, one of the things Warner Brothers always was really good about was sort of the uh, making fun of of classy things. So the two cartoons we've <laughs> Which immediately are both, brings us So in, we're brings so us safe, in, yeah. right. Um, it brings in two cartoons, both amazingly directed by the same man, Chuck Jones. Our idol. One of our heroes. Our personal um, hero. Two cartoons that basically uh, bash the opera in a quite a loving way. Uh, the first one is Rabbit of Seville from 1950, I believe. And the second one is one that is actually the first cartoon to be put on the Library of Congress's National Film Registry, What's Opera Doc? How about it? Um, We'll be uh, taking a chance to look at those in uh, moments, but uh, first it's important to note that all... 
films, whether it is of cartoon or live action, have to pass a very stringent, rigid set of qualifications Ooh, before right. they can get here. There's rules, and gentlemen, those rules are... Well, these cartoons, they create a world that they wholly exist in. Boy, in a big way. And they wholly sustain that world. Regardless of changes in society, they retain their meaning and entertainment value. That's right. And these cartoons is never placed in a preferential number, numerical order. That was good. <laughs> Each cartoon is perfect by its own scale. By its own scale. So you we've can got number these... them all you want, but I'm telling you, these are just, it's better to appreciate them for what they are. That's right. And usually, um, in the course of this, uh, George gives us an uh, accounting of the, the arc of the Could action, be longer than a cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can, I can think, I can sum these up a bit by saying both of them are, of course, the eternal struggle of Bugs Bunny versus Elmer Fudd. <laughs> Which wow. is an incredible eternal. You know, I, I got to tell you, you, I've been in Los Angeles working on a movie, and uh, Elmer Fudd. Yeah, and I was <laughs> I'm, I was working on this lot, um, which is one of the oldest lots out there. And next door, um, we had these offices on, on this old movie lot, and I kept hearing um, this guy in there singing opera, and he's singing Rossini, of course. And I'm going, wow, man, that sounds like Bugs Bunny, you know. <laughs> And his so name you is, went over and talked to him. His he, name is John Davies. He, he's a very famous opera singer. And he has an office over there where he rehearses in the morning and then he goes and does his work. And we became friends. He would come by, hey, Jay Taller. He's from Australia. He's really great. And um, and I said, are you doing Bugs Bunny over there? And he goes, ah. <laughs> ah. He goes, everybody thinks of Rossini <laughs> when they... And so one of the reasons that Rossini has retained its awareness and popularity is because of this cartoon. I, he says, everywhere I go all over the world, sing the Bugs Bunny opera, which is <laughs> Rossini. <Yeah. laughs> and I just thought that was so cool, the fact that a cartoon had – I mean, it's not disrespectful. Of course, they make fun of everything like we do, but we love it. And uh, uh, that Rossini cartoon, the Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd thing, has – Brought more opera fans into existence. It's just—it's an amazing. And I think as far as as far as the two composers that they utilize in these cartoons, I think Rossini, since he did you know some more comic operas, he probably wouldn't have a problem with Rabbit of Seville. But I have a feeling that that Richard Wagner would probably he would have burned <laughs> Elmer down Fudd with those houses things and, and the horns on. I don't think he did. Which would be pretty fun to watch. Yeah. You know? So we've got two today. One features sort of on a snippets of various Wagner operas, and then one uh, very fully. Yes. On the Barber of Seville. It is Barber of Seville, but there are a couple of other little Rossini bits and pieces that, when they fit, they stick them in. So basically, it comes down to the struggle between Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd yeah. set to classic opera. Now, a lot of people, um, they think that Mel Blanc did the voices for everything, but Elmer Fudd had his own voice through those years. Yeah, the voice was Arthur Q. Bryan, who was a very popular character actor, and if you're familiar with him, um, he actually looks a lot like Elmer Fudd. Now, if he's, you, he's a rather roly-poly fellow, kind of bald on top, and uh, when you see him in the movies, it's really bizarre, because it's like, who is that actor who's talking like Elmer Fudd? Yeah. <laughs> Elmer Fudd, through the years, look at the early versions. He's a very heavy guy with a little hunting cap, and he has a smaller head, and then he kind of <laughs> evolves into... Uh, yeah, his body shrinks and his head gets his bigger. His head gets bigger. <laughs> One of the most disturbing... Um, visuals in Rabbit of Seville, which affected me greatly as a small child, um, was him ta massaging Elmer's In the bald. skin, the way it moves <laughs> around the moving. fingers. He's like, he's rolfing his head. Yeah. <laughs> 
And it's, it's one of those things that's so disturbing you can't keep your eyes off it. It's still to this day, I'm sitting in there kind of gripping the table actually, a little hard. We, you know? um, we actually have captured that little piece of audio for our radio audience who won't get to see the film afterwards. Um, Easy to and, find, But just though. think, when you hear this piece of music, see if you can't see Bugs Bunny <laughs> with this really sort of bizarre look on his face massaging Elmer Fudd's head. Yes. Late. Some really bizarre imagery in this film. The snake charmer and the little uh, electric clippers, which were really a big thing back then for Warner Brothers. <laughs> they liked those electric clippers. <laughs> and actually, yeah, it becomes this wonderful sort of rolling, almost like stream of consciousness cartoon where they kind of forget that, you know, we're not worrying about Rossini, but we're going to make things just kind of work and fit into place, as Chuck Jones was really great about. I think looking back, I, I got most of my classical music exposure from the Warner Brothers cartoons. Oh, yeah. That's I mean, what I'm saying. I mean, it's unbelievable how you know, Rossini has been carried on through the times by a couple cartoon characters. You That's know? right. I mean, you go through all the Warner Brothers things, there are certain classical music pieces that probably would be totally forgotten had it not been for them. Uh, Mendelssohn's uh, Spring Song. Can you sing a little bit for us? That's one of my, one of my favorite cartoons. Yes. And uh, Mendelssohn's Fingal Cave Overture, if you're familiar. If you remember the Mina Bird, who just kind of... Yeah, it's a beautiful cartoon. So it took me forever. Now, you know, there's a Disney, and they did their versions of musicals. and But for some reason, it's just not as appealing as the way they go after Rossini and Wagner. <laughs> uh, right, well, I mean, you know, Disney kind of went after it with this beautiful palette and paintbrush, whereas Warner Bros. kind of went after it with, like, sledgehammer yeah. and a vice. You know? <laughs> and here's my thumb. Watch your eye. <laughs> you know? We're talking about two classic Warner Brothers Looney Tunes cartoons that um, focus on opera. The Barber... Uh, no, the... The Rabbit, rabbit of Seville. Seville and kill the, the uh, What's Opera Doc. Kill the Wabbit. <laughs> oh. We're not there yet. We're not there yet, um, but we're getting there. It's in my head, though, man. I tell you, it's Not only in my head. Are, are the visual, the actions, the visuals of the actions notable, but there's just something about the way all the colors and shapes hit the screen that it's just beautiful, particularly, uh, I was going to say, in, in, in the, uh, the uh, What's Opera Doc, because it, it's so Right, well, both of them. Well, Chuck Jones was, was very... Uh, progressive for an animation director. He, uh, during the war, uh, got involved with this group uh, with uh, this guy named Stephen Bazostro, who after the war started this company called United uh, Productions of America, or UPA, who later created Mr. Magoo and um, uh, Gerald McBoing Boing. Oh. And they were known for these extremely, extreme, extremely extreme, design cartoons with everything, you know, bright colors and flat designs and very minimal. Uh, and you can see that in Jones's cartoons more than anybody else's. Yeah, Most of the other directors at Warner Brothers were still, you know, they would draw a table, you know, but Jones would kind of draw a table with, you know, everything off kilter, yeah. which kind of adds to the rather And keep in mind, of, keep in mind when cartoons. you're looking at these this imagery, one of the things behind it was 
the lack of cost because Warner Brothers kept cutting their budgets on these cartoons. Um, you're going to look at you know the the Rabbit of Seville is like 1949, and then uh, what's Opera Doc is about ten years later, yeah. and you'll see that they cut down on on the in betweeners, you know, in between images, and there's not as many backgrounds. But Chuck Jones goes with this incredible fury on what's Opera Doc. So he just goes, he takes that six minutes and he makes it work. But he does it with this minimalist kind of paint style and it's 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 deceptively simple let's talk specifically it. about the backgrounds here i mean the same characters we recognize all of these characters coming in front of the camera but the backgrounds though both excellent and completely um uh, inviting in their own way are, are notably different yeah uh the like i said the the uh, Rabbit of Seville is just sort of the beginning of the modern era where, you know, things are kind of flattening out and, and walls are kind of stretching. But by the time you get to What's Opera Doc, it's like Fantasia on acid. Yeah. I some mean, people the, the, think everything that... Everything is just... Everything is just swirls and colors. Some, some people and, think that this is his best cartoon. There's a lot of critics that call this What's Opera Doc his best cartoon. Well, it, it's unusual, especially in that um, Warner Brothers was very controlling with the budgets. They gave them like a certain amount of film that they could use on each cartoon, and they had five weeks to do it. And Chuck Jones knew it was going to take more time to do What's Opera Doc because it was an extremely complex cartoon. Uh, I think he said there were like 104 setups in in um, wow. What's Opera Doc, whereas most cartoons maybe had 40. So to to make that cartoon, they actually kind of fudged their time cards, and actually <laughs> said that they were spending two extra. They were spending two weeks doing a, a Roadrunner cartoon called Zoom and Board, so they could work an extra two weeks on What's Opera Doc, and then they finished Zoom and Board in three weeks because it was a Roadrunner cartoon, and they knew how it went together really easily. So they actually How took very seven weeks to and make, lucky for us. Yeah, seven weeks to make what's opera dog, and it shows. Uh, it's notable in the opening scenes. They um, in the very scene, there's a like a sandwich board out front that tells you the opera that's taking place inside, and it has right. A that's little... in Rabbit of Seville. Yeah, yeah, and that's a, that's one of their great a typical in joke. The uh, the the signboard you know says Barbara Seville, featuring um, Eduardo Salzari, uh, what is it, uh, Michela Maltese and Carlo Jonesy. Um, who, of course, are you know the names of of the director, the story author, and the producer of the cartoon studio. Now, one of the things that you you I challenge you to look for, and and this is a really cool trick, and I use it all the time because it's a cheap trick, of course. Um, look at the use of blacks. I mean, black, ink black in these cartoons. You'll notice that where there are blacks, your eye will immediately go to that blackness. And then that's where he's got you. He's got you by the nose. You know, as soon as your eye lands on that black, he moves your, your eye around according to the character. For some reason, in the persistence of vision on, on, on animation and everything, a black will get you there faster than anything. And I can attest to this because... When I want to go home early, I, there's a lot of black. So, <laughs> my storyboards. <laughs> and you watch, especially in what's Opera Doc, you're going to see this incredible use of like doorways, black. And that's where your eye will go. And then pretty soon, before you know it, your eye is tracking all over that cartoon. And it's over. Boom. Just like that. Fantastically deceptive. And Chuck Jones was a master of this persistence of vision that you see in these cartoons. He absolutely had it. And here's another cool thing to look for. Look up Chuck Jones. George and I met him. <laughs> we shook his hand in college. Oh, and he signed nice. George's books. 
look up Chuck Jones's face and through the years, and you will notice, <laughs> you will notice when he, in 1949 on the Rapids Ville, those characters are starting to all look like Chuck Jones. His <laughs> eye movement, because they use a, a mirror a lot to do eyeballs, you know, and uh, an animator will use a mirror and they'll draw themselves. You get to what's Opera Doc, and the horse even looks like Chuck Jones. <laughs> the horse doesn't resemble <laughs> Chuck Jones. Yes. <laughs> You look him, I'm not kidding you. Bugs Bunny is Chuck Jones. And Elmer Fudd is like the anti-Bugs Bunny Chuck Jones. And Jones actually um, is, is interesting because he's one of the cartoonists who, who really got into the, the idea of, of just using expression. You know, rather than having every gag end with a hammer or someone exploding, although he still does that. That's time-honored. Uh, there will be a lot of them where it's just a look. A look off to the look at, straight out at the audience. A subtle, a, a curl of the lip, and as he goes on, you get into his stuff after Warner Brothers in the sixties and seventies. Think of the Grinch, yes. the character of the Grinch, Ricky Tikki Tavi, Ricky Tikki Tavi, the Crick in Times Square, the Lorax. You know all of those. Just you know, one one froggy night. I did not realize he'd done the Lorax. Yeah, mm. he because uh, one of the people he made friends with during World War II was was Doctor Seuss. They worked together on the private snafu cartoons. Which, if you've never seen one of those, look those up. Those are hysterical also. Not We're going to have an all-cartoon day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Every day. Well, when, when I was a very small child, um, the Robbins and Myers Company in Springfield, Ohio, uh, my uncle worked there. And as a Christmas present to all their employees, <laughs> nobody does this anymore, they showed Warner Brother cartoons for four straight hours at the old Memorial Hall on the monster screen. It's easy to blame all that on all your problems you know, when you grow up. <laughs> <Or> vice versa. <laughs> Chuck Jones cartoons for four hours. Oh, we have a little bit of... Uh, One right after another. A selection from the uh, What's Opera Doctor. Oh, yes. I get, bet you can't guess what piece we chose. Uh... Kill the wabbit. Kill the wabbit. Kill the wabbit. Kill the wabbit. <laughs> Oh, mighty warrior of great fighting stock, might I inquire to ask him, what's up, Doc? <laughs> We're talking about two of the finest uh, operas set to tune ever on Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. It's uh, 1949's. Rabbit of Seville and 1957's uh, What's Opera, Doc? Let's talk a little bit about all this in the arc of Chuck Jones' career. He started making cartoons when and wrapped by which point? Was right, this well, Chuck Jones started in the early 30s actually as a cell washer. Um, basically, uh, the cells that they drew the cartoons on were very expensive, so they would actually, when they were done, they would send them off to the cell washing department and wash the paint off of them. hurts my heart yeah. to think that all these just got and, washed. And um, he got to Warner Brothers and very quickly uh, became a director. And his first cartoons are really interesting because it's like Sniffles the Mouse. Yep. And, there's uh, a really great one where the sniffles the mouse gets drunk. <laughs> Think about that. Now, <laughs> yeah. And there's an electric razor. Yeah, they that sing. He, they do uh, really sing beautiful. Duet of how dry I am. <laughs> um, but his cartoons are a very cutesy animal, and and then he kind of got into the Bugs Bunny thing. Bugs have been created by another animator, and Jones, and actually everybody took a turn at animating Bugs, and Jones got into it and slowly begins to build this these characters up. He goes beyond Bugs. 
and he creates like the Roadrunner and the Coyote and one of my favorites, Marvin the Martian. Oh, that, man, that was. Um, there used to be a, a person at WYSO we used to kid because she sounded just like Marvin the Martian. <laughs> We'll say who it For is. Sure. But she talk but, uh, like this when she's on WASO. <laughs> Hello, we're going to blow up the world. <laughs> it makes me very angry. Uh, so after Warner Brothers uh, gave up their cartoon studio, J- Jones went over to, I believe he went over to MGM and took over the Tom and Jerry series. Which are series. incredible series oh, of cartoons. Man. The ones that he did... They're there's absolutely a, out of control line. with violence, but you know, try yeah. to disregard that stuff. I watched those. I'm turned out fine mostly. And, yeah. It's a matter of opinion. Um, <laughs> and then after, I mean, when that when MGM also packed it up, then by that time Jones has started his own company and began doing the cartoons f- that we know from television, the the Grinch and the other Dr. Seuss cartoons, and also like Ricky Tikki Tabby, and and that's what he became known. And he worked that pretty much right to the end of his days. And uh, if you really want a horse laugh. You know, watch the movie The Grinch, and then watch that incredibly clean cartoon by Chuck Jones. You're going to see who's the skilled master at telling a story here as oh, Chuck Jones. Oh, what an interesting comparing live action to a lot more money involved in the movie too. Right, and I, I highly recommend he wrote two books about his work. Uh, one was called uh, Chuck Amuck, and the other one I think is called Chuck Redux. And uh, <laughs> there are stories and anecdotes about his time at the Termite Terrace for Warner Brothers and all the different things. And it's just, it would make a great movie. They've tried to actually make it into a movie a couple times, but it keeps getting stopped. But just some of the stories about them and what they did, you can imagine a, a building full of animators uh, on a movie lot. Sure, the smell was bad. Yeah. What, is it, was, was there an in-house orchestra that they had at their... Yes, there was. Uh, the orchestra for the Warner Brothers cartoons was the Warner Brothers Studio Orchestra. Which sounds like Warner Brothers. And you're going to hear, we've done a lot of shows, at least three shows that are Warner Brothers movies coming up. And you're going to hear this, um, this specialized Warner Brothers music that they use to make sure you never fall asleep on their movies. Boy. So it was a constant yeah. tool in there. So yeah. that's why Max we Steiner, have such a rich Dimitri Tompkins, who else like in the morning, the the orchestra would be doing the score for Mildred Pierce, and in the mm-hmm. afternoon, they'd be doing you know some Bugs Bunny cartoon, you know, and they just switch you know, switch hats, put the yeah. funny hats on. Do we know from these who whose idea it was to do these these famous operas and to focus in on opera in this way? I was would say it it's Chuck? probably Chuck Jones and his team. I mean, they had a team. M- Michael Maltese is very often the writer on these cartoons, and so I'm sure the Maltese would bring these stories to Jones. Uh, I, I've heard they had lots of different. Uh, ways of getting stories. Uh, Edward Selzer, who was the their producer, you know, the the worst person in the world to be a cartoon producer. He had no sense of humor, but uh, he came <laughs> to them one day and he said, "You know, bullfighting's not funny. I don't ever want to see a cartoon about bullfighting." And so they all went. Hmm. <laughs> and within six months, Bully for Bugs came out, and it's one of the funniest. Bugs it funny is. Cartoons now, when you, when you watch uh, the Warner Brother cartoons, now, when they do. When they make movies, the writers, you know, they, they submit the script and it's already written and everything like that. And then sometimes they say, well, okay, it's got to become a picture. I understand. And then they get their little hearts broken and they walk off because it has to become an image. But these guys, these guys from the get-go, the minute they started talking about story or writing, even before they wrote it, it was picture first. And because it's animation, and you cannot have two people sitting around with over the shoulder shots talking in a cartoon. Um, these guys, when they came in, it was like killing rattlesnakes immediately. They they went to town because they don't give very much time. People don't realize how much 
There's nothing like deadlines to get things done, and that's the way they did things. Money, you either do two things and you're making a movie or a cartoon. You're either shooting the movie or a schedule, one of the two. The schedule is the ultimate villain. You don't want to shoot a schedule. You want to keep your focus on the movie or the cartoon. And these guys look like they were so far ahead of management when they were getting something done because there's – it's brilliance what you're watching and what you're really seeing, which if you really, really peel back the layers, you're seeing visionary genius. And that's what you're seeing is Chuck Jones because Chuck Jones had vision. And if you don't believe me, look at his career, look at all the different experiments that he did. All these, what was the cartoon with the notes? Oh, high note. Yeah. About drunken music. He went, <laughs> he, like what George is saying, he figured out how to experiment at the same time by tricking people, you know, oh, yeah, we're doing Roadrunner. And then he was in there doing what he wanted to do, like a mad scientist. So what you're looking at is visionary genius. On this and side. I think one of the big differences uh, be- between Warner Brothers and other studios is because of the tight restrictions, money restrictions put on them, they had to do all their editing up front. They couldn't go, Disney would, you know, shoot a cartoon. If it didn't work in a part, they'd go and they'd clip it out and they'd re-edit it, but Warner Brothers couldn't do that, so they had to edit everything ahead of time, lock the soundtrack, animate the cartoon, do the soundtrack, and it was done. So that you know probably had to raise their level of ingenuity a notch or two to be able to do that. And all their in betweeners got every five weeks. All the in between artists were here in the United States. They weren't in Korea or China because that's what they do now. Is they send all the in betweens. Storyboard gets done up front, and then they send all the in betweens to a foreign country usually to be painted. Is that a direct right? yeah, to, to be uh, the cells to be inked and painted. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about classic Warner Brother cartoons, uh, specifically focusing in on opera, and uh, those are the Rabbit of Seville and What's Opera Doc. And as far as the rules, uh, there's no question. You're I think that they are drawn. I would say they create the world. They create the world. Oh, yeah. Literally, that they exist in. They That's also an easy sustain one for our rules yeah. on this one, yes. Not just that. Uh, beyond sustaining it, there are iconic images. The huge shadow of, of Crazy, crazy angles. Crazy. You think it's just great Viking, and then when they finally pan down, he's just hugely underlit. Remember, gravity, it's the law, doesn't apply to these cartoons. That's right. <laughs> also, him climbing to the top of the steps and looking over, and these uh, so many of these images um, uh, made so rule three absolutely maintained and i think that people will be watching these cartoons when our grandchildren's grandchildren are raising their as long as we have some way of watching them they will continue watching <laughs> you think we will yeah yes 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 if you'd like to George know more, makes a bold prediction for the future <laughs> if there's any way well, we could just have as long more as we have <laughs> eyes or some sort of visual organ i think it's true they're beyond timeless it's almost like they're a part of the continuum it's filmically perfect on 91.3 WYSO, and we do hope that you'll take uh, time to stop by the the film site. It is uh, the uh, perfectmovie.net. You can find out. Uh, we got all a bunch about. more uh, shows coming up in the next uh, 11 weeks yep. because we're more. doing them. A lot of great movies. And of course, we're hoping to air those, although I understand 6 o'clock this evening there's something eventful, but uh, hopefully we'll uh, be on schedule. We'll and get by that. We'll get by that. So uh, do tune in. We'd love to hear from everyone that uh, has thoughts and uh And we're on Facebook, too. We're on Facebook. Facebook, you can... Got a new uh, and we certainly appreciate... to them. Certainly appreciate you listening to our show and giving us comments. That's it's right. always wonderful. And coming out here today, it's very nice of you. 
Um, even the unhappy fan that's yeah. <laughs> we're sorry about your well, we tried you're going to enjoy this cartoon one day and remember this day right. uh, so stop by npr.org wyso.org you can find us on iTunes on Facebook or write to the film guys we love to hear from you your thoughts reflections suggestions and that's film guys at perfectmovie.net uh, sorry <laughs> You looked like you were going to say something, and I wanted to hear it. Oh, no, I was thinking of killing the wabbit, killing the wabbit. Hey, thanks so much for coming by. I'm Nikki Dakota, your host, and it's been a great pleasure to be looking at you and recording with you. It is Mr. George Willerman. Zion. Also, J. Todd Anderson, thanks so much for being here. Always a pleasure. Uh, thanks for coming by. Simply Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.